kids are getting worse. They won't obey their parents, they just want to fart and curse. Should we blame the government? Or blame society? Or should we blame the images on TV? No, blame Canada! Blame Canada! Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We write about the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and other interesting stuff. We have a great show for you this week. We're going to be talking to our film critics, Stephen Garrett and Sarah Stewart about the Oscars. Oscar nominations were announced this week and we are contractually obligated to have an Oscar roundtable. It's a great discussion. Stephen also is reviewing Death on the Nile, the new Agatha Christie adaptation from Kenneth Branagh. But first, we're going to talk about politics. Specifically, we're going to talk about Joe Rogan. He didn't specifically get into a rumble with crime novelist Don Winslow, but Don Winslow waded into the debate And then we waded into the debate because we weighed. I'm talking to our Canadian correspondent, Jamie Mason, and that will be up right away. So we finally waded into the Joe Rogan waters on Book and Film Globe. It's not really in our coverage area, but at last something came up that allowed us to uh, get a little piece of that cheddar. Uh, The novel was Don Winslow, a uh, pulp crime novelist uh, who was very active on Twitter, stepped into the Joe Rogan debate this week, and he tried to call attention to Joe Rogan's repeated use of the N-word, and uh, and specifically he alerted The Rock to this because The Rock had been tweeting out support about Joe Rogan. It's all very uh, superficial and and dumb and petty, but it does involve... a significant writer. And Jamie Mason, our Canadian correspondent, has written about this. Jamie, hello. Hi, Neil. Great to talk to you. So why did Don Winslow get into the middle of this? I think it's an interesting question. Um, I think that based on my own contact with Don on uh, on Twitter, I read his tweets with interest, uh, particularly when they're related to his novels. But he's also very politically Active. My understanding is that he's pretty closely affiliated with your Democratic Party in the U.S. And, you know, he will often espouse opinions or share information that shore up the uh, the Democrat view of issues. And my understanding is that Joe Rogan is considered something of a, a right wing conservative figure, despite being kind of a bald pot smoking counterculture type. And after his vilification by Neil Young and various other musicians who pulled their their material off of Spotify in objection to Joe Rogan's presence, he, that is to say Joe Rogan, uh, received some support from that professional wrestler, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And uh, Don Winslow felt that it's worthwhile alerting uh, The Rock to Joe's repeated use uh, of the N-word in, well, various contexts within his comedy and podcasts. But then Twitter emerged, as it often does, and pointed out that Don Winslow himself has used the N-word repeatedly, many, many times in many books over the years. And that, you know, he was basically a person living in a glass house who was throwing stones. Well, it's interesting. You know, the the house in this case uh, is is a house made of words. And it's it's kind of a funny thing because if you're going to go through somebody's Twitter history and say look for for bad language or uh, political wrong think, 
it's pretty easy because, you know, tweets are very short. But if you're writing, you know, 60, 70, 80,000 word novels, uh, well, that's a big target. There's a lot of words there. And as you pointed out, Dawn walks uh, a beat that includes hard cases, cops, criminals, narcos, and those are rough men, and rough men use rough language. So it was fairly easy for a Twitter operative vocal distance to fist through a number of Dawn's novels and, and find examples of the N-word, which is where this kerfuffle began. Right. And, you know, as your point uh, very intelligently points out, it's not wrong that Don Winslow puts the N-word into the mouths of characters who would use it and who don't care about Twitter and who aren't, you know, first of all, some of those novels, these novels predate social media. And even the ones that do, these are people who like whose lives and realities have nothing to do with the kinds of people who sit around all day and police people's language on Twitter, which is why it's kind of ironic that Don Winslow, someone who makes his living off of freedom of expression, freedom of speech and, you know, and use of the wide array of language and human behaviors would criticize someone like this. You know, the, the political motivations are very strange to me, because you know, because Look, Joe Rogan has used the N-word and has he said some things that are edgy or questionable, but he's not a right-wing figure. You know, he supported Bernie Sanders for president. He's, he was a huge proponent of marijuana legalization. Really, his crime is that he has espoused some non-mainstream views about COVID policies and about COVID treatments. He's had some anti-vax oriented guests on his show. Um, He interviews people for hours at a time. And the mainstream liberal point of view in the United States is that you can't do that. Yeah, no. Well, there's there's definitely been um, a very harsh boundary uh, between the left and right on on a lot of these issues. Certainly, using the policing of language as as a way to caution, sideline, or silence people is fairly common in what we call cancel culture these days. Personally, you know, I, I look at this whole controversy involving Joe Rogan and his crowd and sort of the Neil Young. Uh, Don Winslow axis. And it seems to me that, you know, what you have are two camps of people who are very concerned with doing the right thing. You know, Neil Young and company feel that that Rogan uh, has been passing misinformation around uh, about COVID. By the same token, you know, Joe Rogan features long form interviews that are, are earnest discussions of underrepresented and uh, underreported topics. And I'm sure that he and his team believe that they're doing the right thing by promoting discussion and speculation in the public sphere. So there's, there's two parties that are, are, are very concerned about doing the right thing, and they've come into collision. And that strikes me as a terrible shame. The difference is, is that only one party is looking to repress speech. I mean, you know, I don't think that the guy on Twitter who was calling out Don Winslow was saying Don Winslow shouldn't write or publish novels. I think he was just kind of pointing out the hypocrisy of it all. Yeah, it it does seem to be more of a, a liberal leftish tendency to try to suppress voices. I, as a writer uh, and correspondent, find that, that kind of behavior worrisome uh, because it, it puts a chill over freedom of expression. You know, you you start self-censoring, and then the question is, you know, wh- when is my turn going to come to be canceled? <laughs> so I, I, I can't see that kind of strategy 
uh, working in the long term. But the, there is an interesting point that was brought up by Local Distance, the same guy who fisked Don's books and found all the examples of the N-word. In a later tweet, he speculated about what was behind the whole Joe Rogan controversy. And he noted that one of the chief individuals on Twitter that's been militating for Joe to be taken off of Spotify is a, a Twitter account called Patriot Takes. And Patriot Takes is affiliated with an organization. I don't have the name handy, but it's actually, it's mentioned in, in Patriot Takes Twitter bio. He's affiliated with this organization that's actually a, a, a Democrat Party super PAC. And he speculates that this this actually is originating uh, and gaining momentum as a result of pressure from a Democrat super PAC. And that might explain part of the involvement of other large luminaries like Joni Mitchell and David Crosby and Crosby, Souls Nash and all of these groups that are starting to militate to, to have Rogan silence. So there's yeah. a definite political element. Yeah, the establishment. I mean, you know, Joe Rogan is the most popular podcast in the world, so in some ways he's the establishment too. But the old establishment is feeling very threatened by this. And, you know, and yeah, there may be some distinct differences in COVID policy, but you know, in reality, this is really a culture war being fought at, uh, you know, a, a number of different levels. And I, I wanted to um, briefly pivot because you're there in Canada and, you know, as someone who follows COVID news fairly closely, I've been fascinated by what's going on in Canada and Canadian cities, and particularly the capital of Ottawa. Uh, there's this sort of war between the Canadian polit liberal political establishment, left political establishment, really, and these truckers, these working class truckers. Uh, I mean, the, the, the divide in Canada seems worse in some ways than it is in the United States, where we have a, you know, a very heterogeneous population. There's people with all kinds of views floating around. Part of the issue in Canada, certainly we, we have a, a lot of the same kind of social tension that exists in the States, just slightly muted and, and moved over to the left of the Overton window a little bit more. But part of the problem we're facing up here is we have, we have a government in power that's, in my view, different from, from any government we've had prior. Um, Canadians have have always been very good uh, at talking and reaching compromise, but the Liberal government of Justin Trudeau has followed sort of the the same kind of of Democrat inspired momentum that's that's going after Rogan. There's there's a lot of silencing, a lot of cancel culture, a lot of politically correct double talk that's used to just silence and and sideline critics. A case in point would be about two years ago. Uh, there was uh, a discussion in, in the House of Commons that had to do with some hot button topics surrounding uh, immigration, I believe, was was the issue. And the conservative leader, Andrew Scheer, at the time stood up and he made some comments. And after that session of the House of Commons, Justin Trudeau summoned uh, the party leaders to come and meet with him. And he summoned every party leader except Andrew Scheer. So the, the conservatives, the second biggest political party in Canada, was completely sidelined. And Justin Trudeau's justification was that Scheer disqualified himself because of his remarks. So there's a kind of an intransigence, an intolerance that we've seen displayed a number of times now by Trudeau and his government. And I think that that's kind of at the heart of the of the COVID issue. The heart of the at the heart of it, meaning they don't tolerate dissent or uh, opposing views. Right. And, you know, and so these truckers who are, you know, from what I can gather, you know, actually fairly racially diverse. They've been painted as this kind of like white supremacist 
organization. I've seen people like comparing the Canadian flag to, uh, you know, to the Confederate flag, to people singing Oh Canada, you know, they've been, you know, calling Oh Canada like a fascist anthem. And I'm just kind of like, it just doesn't make sense to me. It's one thing to, uh, to disagree with someone about policy, but uh, clearly there is some frustration about the policies of the government that have, um, have led to uh, led to these protests. They didn't just come out of nowhere. No, they they definitely didn't. It's it's worth noting that we have a state broadcaster up here, the the CBC, the Communist the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, right. and uh, there are one or there are a couple of other uh, major news outlets. Before the last election, the Liberal Party provided a multi million dollar bequest to a number of these these media outlets, including the CBC. And faithfully, they have reported only one side of the story ever since. If you take a look at Canadian media coverage about what's going on with the truckers, there has never been the human interest angle that Canadian journalism is famous for. You know, CBC back in the day would go out and and say, well, who are these people? What do they want? Let's go talk to them. Well, right off the bat, their coverage is uh, residents are, are concerned about violence from the truckers. Signs of racial intolerance, you know, with, with the presence of a, of a Nazi flag. Some, some Yahoo showed up at the demonstration in Ottawa waving, waving a swastika. You know, the, the, the mainstream media was happy to report that. They didn't report the fact that the truckers descended on this guy, roughed him up, and, and threw him out. You know, it's it's, it's this, this kind of view of, oh, yeah, well, you know, we're only going to report part of the story that spins the issue in a direction that, that's consonant with, with government propaganda. It's, it's like a, a kind of a free market pravda that has emerged up here in Canada, the use of economic and political pressure to shape media and thus to shape the, the perception of, of a great many Canadians who still trust the CBC and uh, who form their opinions based on its reportage. And that's, that's troubling. You know, it's funny, I didn't see Soviet Canada as being a sort of one of the emerging storylines of the pandemic. But the, the, the takeaway from all this, Jamie, is that, you know, yes, it's bad here in the United States. There are definitely sensorial attitudes, but, um, you know, we don't really have a state, state-run media. You know, we yeah, there's national public radio and, and PBS, but, um, you know, they, they have a very limited audience at this point. So uh, the takeaway here is that censorship is bad. All opinions should be aired and that we should continue to have free debate and free discussion about anything, whether we're in the United States or in Canada. And that's what we push on Book and Film Globe. Absolutely. You know, if I could just take a moment and circle back to something here. Sure. You know, you mentioned the the, the political divide uh, between left and right being instrumental in, in the whole trucker situation. Uh, there's also another component, I think, and it plays into the Joe Rogan issue. Uh, there's a generational struggle that's going on. You know, you look at that, somebody like like Joe, he's he's a Gen Xer. He's kind of part of our generation. And the people who are all trying to cancel him are the are the baby boomer types. They're the Neil Youngs. They're the uh, the Joni Mitchells and, and, and the people like I guess I suppose Don Winslow as well. For sure. Uh, yeah, they're part of that cohort, that generational cohort. And I think that there's there's a component of that in Canada, too. Now, we do have a younger leadership than you have in the States, but the Canadian Liberal Party, which is sort of the, the, the establishment party of Canada, is still running very much on, on a boomer narrative. So I think there's, there's, there's components of a generational as well as a political struggle in both countries. Down with the boomers, up with the new, that's what I say. <laughs> 
Gen X well, is going to have its day. We better we better get it soon, though, because we're getting old, Jamie. We are. Just like Prince Charles, we're no longer interesting. <laughs> All right, Jamie Mason, thank you so much. You're welcome. And that bitch, Anne-Marie, too. In Canada. In Canada. All I can say is, I give all to Canada. Everybody! That is Blame Canada from the South Park movie. The greatest moment, well, at least one of the two greatest moments in best song nomination history for the Oscars. Uh, the other being, of course, uh, Man or Muppet from the Muppet movie revival. That was uh, Brett McKenzie from <laughs> Flight of the Concords. What a, what a tune that was. Uh, usually the Oscar songs are, are pretty bad. And I mentioned that because it's Oscar time. Oscar nominations are out, and I have assembled a roundtable of Rotten Tomatoes-approved film critics, including me, including Sarah Stewart, and including Stephen Garrett. We're all here to talk about this year's nominations. Hello, guys. Hey. The first voice was Stephen. The second voice was Sarah. In case, in case you're curious. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, all right, I want to give a couple of quick impressions. Well, one, I live in Austin, Texas, and I'm an aging Gen X hipster. So, uh, Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons were celebrated on my feed for their nominations. Everyone, all, all the Gen Xers love Kirsten Dunst, and Austin people have a soft spot for Jesse Plemons because of his participation in the Friday Night Lights TV series. So, hooray for them! And uh, the other general observation I was going to make about the nominations is that, you know, you have 10 best picture nominees, most of which the vast majority of people have not seen and will never see, you know, Dune is the only one that really had any real box office uh, mojo. And I guess you could say, don't look up the, uh, the Adam McKay satire uh, is also extremely popular on, on Netflix for a bit, but you know, the rest of these movies are, uh, they're pretty obscure art films even by uh by oscar standards although i guess you know west side story was supposed to be a big hit so i don't know that's just par for the course for the oscars these days increasingly irrelevant to anyone under 40 but they're still the oscars and they're still worth talking about anyone who loves movies loves the oscar loves and hates the oscar so right right that that said let's have sarah give her uh, general impressions of this year's nominees um, it's, it's not a wildly inspiring year. I think a lot of people are unfamiliar with many of the Best Picture nominees, and some of them seem to me to be movies that were kind of designed to end up on this list. For example, Kenneth Branagh's Belfast, which uh, was shot in black and white. And then, you know, you have your one mass appeal movie in uh, that eluded the critics and don't look up. I'm also a little bit disheartened to see that once again, we only have one woman uh, directed movie on Best Picture list. And uh, it's not surprising that it's Jane Campion, but still the more things change. In other snubs nominee, uh, should have been nominees, I would say that I would have liked to have seen Tick, Tick, Boom on the list. I would have liked to have seen Pig on the list. I would have liked to have seen Petite Maman on the, uh, on the international films that were nominated, although that was a, was a tough year. I think the, the international films are actually a, probably a stronger group than the, uh, than the domestic ones. All right, Stephen, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with a lot of uh, what what Sarah's saying. Although, you know, things like the Teen Memo, I lo- I love that movie. It's just beautiful and glorious. But I don't think that's one of those categories. The the countries 
I guess, weirdly choose the movie they're going to submit. And so there's that politicking. And so it wasn't even eligible to be nominated. That I think is true. Teton was the one. And yeah, it's a tricky time. Who's going to movies? And, you know, I think West Side Story oh, yeah. would have been a smash in normal times. Well, yes, of course. You're, you're going and uh, I'm going and Sarah's going, you know. Uh, but I think the average uh, viewers over 50 who would have absolutely loved West Side Story, which is a really wonderfully made film, uh, and does as much as possible to be as accessible and as mainstream as you could get. It's a really entertaining film, and I think most people would really love it if they saw it, and no one chose to. Um, and whether that's because musicals aren't popular, or whether that's because everybody's afraid of going to the movies, or the audience is too old and, and doesn't want to go out, I, you know, I, I feel like that's just a victim of circumstance for anything else. I think Spider-Man would have been nice to see on here, just to kind of throw a bone to the popcorn picture crowd, which is why they expanded the category to 10. Um, they did not expand it to 10 so that they could get more prestige movies on here like Nightmare Alley, which is a beautifully sumptuously produced film. But to me, I found it really lacking and, and kind of uh, a bore. And of course, it made no impact at all culturally or financially in the box office. But yeah, I mean, you know, of course, you're going to see films like Licorice Pizza and and Belfast. Coda surprised me because I, I think that's a real charm, charming movie maybe a little gratingly charming, if you ask me, but um, certainly is very <laughs> effective. And I think would have been a crowd pleaser in a normal year that would have played through the roof in um, theaters and been a huge word of mouth hit. Maybe Apple just doesn't have its act together in terms of promoting movies on their platform the way that Netflix really has kind of uh, pioneered and hammered out, which is why Don't Look Up got the slot. So I'm kind of pleasantly surprised that Coda made the, the best picture list. But to your point, Neil, like who's seen it? I wish people more... Would, would see that. I think more people would really enjoy it because it is a very accessible, very sweet, lovely film. I think the problem with Coda is that it really, it, it sort of suffers from a lack of branding. Mm. You know, it's a, it's a dramedy, but it's, it's a little bit difficult to, to really categorize it outside of it being a movie with death material in it. And I agree. It's a very sweet, very accessible movie. I just think it's really, it hasn't had the kind of, uh, publicity campaign that maybe it should have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you all mentioned uh, some of my favorite movies from the last year, Titan. I wouldn't say I love Titan, but I, I, I thought it was gr very, very compelling and well done. You know, and Pig, I loved Pig. And, you know, who who doesn't like a Spider-Man, a good Spider-Man movie? <laughs> Why not? Why not nominate a Spider-Man movie for Best Picture? You know, they, they've nominated Batman movies, they nominated Black Panther. You know, Spider-Man, it's, it's not a Best Picture winner quality movie but it's it's fun you know what neil on that point i think i read an article in one of the trades that was kind of analyzing why it actually is very apt that that didn't get nominated and it said as opposed to movies like black panther that did get nominated which were superhero movies um you need to have seen a lot of spider-man movies in order to get all the references that this movie is doing you know like this movie you really need some background whereas black panther you could go into it fresh you you know you don't need to know a lot of backstory of Marvel characters in order to really enjoy it. Yeah. And Black Panther was also like, you know, kind of a singular pan-Africanist vision. You know, exactly. A lot, exactly. A lot, a lot yeah. of like interesting stuff in it where Spider-Man was just like, you know, like it's a pan Spider-Man. Pan Spider-Man was like a big, <laughs> it was just like a big bucket of junior mints. Um, right. So, right. all right. We talked about what didn't get nominated and, you know, but we have to talk about the, the dog in the room. The power of the dog, yeah, because <laughs> yeah. that that did get nominated for everything, and you know clearly 
uh, we are destined for the power of the dog to be best picture. And, you know, Stephen, you and I have talked about the power of the dog on this show before, and I, it's not a bad movie in the sense that it's a throwaway, like Kevin Hart comedy or something. Right. (laughs) You know, a lot of people really hate this movie. Um, and not necessarily because of its moral ambiguity, but just because it's just so sour and unappealing and, and just and, and misanthropic. Oh, I disagree. I disagree. I mean, no, I don't disagree that it's mis- misanthropic and I don't disagree that it's sour. But I do think that there's something there's something multi-layered going on in it. There's something that stays with you that sort of gets under your skin in a very Jane campy any way that I hope brings it to more people's attention by virtue of it being nominated. I, I, I continue to think about it. I really do. It's- I continue to think about how much I disliked it. <laughs> I, know you do. I continue I know to you think do. about why do people like this movie so much? Cause I was not overwhelmed at all. I did not find it powerful. I found it beautifully made, very well acted, a compelling story, but it did not linger in my head. And, and frankly, uh, you know, once it turned into this kind of gay melodrama, I found it actually a little kind of dull and predictable a bit, you know. The, the gay yearning for Bronco Henry just became this kind of punchline to me. Yeah, I think he said the name once too often where I started to giggle. Bronco Henry! <laughs> The, the Bronco the Bronco Henry prequel is going to be something just like the Buzz Lightyear, Buzz Lightyear gets a prequel. You know? <laughs> or just story of Bronco Henry. We call it Bronco. Or just oh call God. it Bronco Henry. There was someone who nominated uh, Bronco Henry to host the Oscars this year. Yeah, why not? Why not? <laughs> but hey, maybe, you know what? Maybe this wins because it's a consensus choice, mainly because it checks so many boxes for people who don't like the movie and also it checks so many boxes for people who do love the movie, you know? And, and for those who don't like it, it's the it'll be the first well it'll be the first since Catherine Bigelow I guess where it's a female directed film wins the Oscar uh, for best picture and I, I'm assuming best director she's going to get you know that's kind of in the bag that's kind of underrepresented that's a representation I I would get behind Netflix inevitably will get this at some point they're so thirsty for it speaking of Netflix I wanted to um, pivot I watched on Netflix The Lost Daughter. Uh, which uh, was not nominated for Best Picture, even though I really feel like it should have been. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna have a list of ten, and you're gonna nominate both the lead actresses and the screenwriter for this movie, and and also why not nominate Maggie Gyllenhaal for directing this movie? I thought it was excellently uh, excellently directed. Uh, I you know I really I really like The Lost Daughter. I mean, again, this is not a movie that um, I looked at the the gap on Rotten Tomatoes between critics was we were in like 94% and viewers were like 45% pretty big gap because, you know, it's a very, it's talking about, I want to talk about sour and misanthropic. My God, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, you're, you're like, I mean, I've never seen such a jaundiced view of parenthood. And yet as someone who has, you know, traveled through some of the more jaundiced corners of parenthood, I, I could relate to it. I agree. I think it's a crime that it was left off, especially when Don't, don't Look Up is on the list. It is. <laughs> you know what? I know it's unpopular. I'm going to defend Don't Look Up. I laughed. Any movie that makes me laugh out loud, I can't hate. And I did never, I, I did never at one point hated looking at Don't Look Up. And I was really scratching my head that every single person across the board who, who wrote about this movie despised not just disliked but despised was like almost kind of morally offended by it. i didn't despise it 
advertise it. I thought it was pretty funny. I, you know, I, well, that's just, good to hear. That's good to hear. Well, it's not going to win. I don't think it's the best picture. Don't get me wrong. I totally agree with you, Sarah. You know, I think uh, between the two of them, I think Lost Daughter is a, it's absolutely a better film than Don't Look Up. But I'm surprised that it's, you know, such a punching bag for people. Can I talk about another snub, though, quickly? Yes, I, I of know course. that technically Barb and Star was supposed to qualify <laughs> for the Oscars last year. <laughs> But it got nothing, and it couldn't have qualified for the Oscars Rob. this year, and it should have been on that goddamn best picture list. I no. will go to my grave for this one. There you go. Bleed for it. I mean, I, I will watch Barb and Star five more times before I ever look at Nightmare Alley again or King Richard. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, but I would say the same thing about Don't Look Up. I mean, I, 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 Barb, I would probably watch Barb and Star over Don't Look Up again just because it, it has a happy ending. Um, but, uh, you know, but both of them are entertaining movies. <laughs> Well, I think that's the gist of it, right? It's it's that why not laugh? Why not have something that's entertaining? And it's like eat your peas. Every best picture list is all these dramas and epics and these things that are prestige, quote unquote. But you know what they say? Dying is easy and comedy is hard, right? And uh, it is very hard to pull off a comedy that um, uh, that's going to make a top 10 list at the end of the year, you know? Well, comedy continues to just get short shrift. It always does. Comedy and horror. Get yeah. no love whatsoever. They, and I don't know what's going to change that, but it's uh, it's really limited. Yeah, the the sour misanthropic dramas always uh, always. always. Get the love. Oh my goodness! Although Licorice Pizza is kind of fun, maybe that's an entertaining, funny movie. I, I love Licorice Pizza. And of obviously, it's not going to win, but of the ten nominees, it would be my. It's the one I like the most. But mm. I, my, my list would have been like you know Licorice Pizza, Pig. The Lost Daughter. I mean, I, I, what this this is just as a film critic list is the one they put up there. Spider Man, <laughs> the, the Vin Diesel movie. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Fast and Furious Nine. I think it was. I think I read Alison Wilmore was writing uh, and did a brave prediction, basically saying, "Don't look up. Will win Best Picture." Uh, if only because it is the movie that every that the most amount of voters have actually seen. Uh, by virtue of it coming out when it did, end of December, it was on Netflix. You know, it's got had very starry cast. It's very easy to watch, um, and that's had the most exposure. Also, a uh, very humane running time, I think. Right, under two, under hours. two hours, exactly. Yeah, very humane running uh, time. Leonardo DiCaprio yeah. and Jennifer Lawrence tried to warn us that Don't Look Up was going to win Best Picture. <laughs> none, of, exactly. none of us, no one listened, and then look what happened. All right, Stephen and Sarah, thank you so much for the Oscar roundtable. Stephen, you can stick around to talk about Death on the Nile, which I predict will not win the Oscar in 2023. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Am I a man or am I a muppet? Am I a muppet? If I'm a muppet, well, I'm a very manly muppet. Very manly muppet. Am I a muppet? Miraculously, there is a big budget movie opening in theaters this week. It is Death on the Nile, the adaptation of and the remake of the Agatha Christie novel. I did not like much the uh, adaptation of Murder on the Orient Express that came out a few years ago, but it did cement Kenneth Branagh as a very idiosyncratic and worthy Hercule Poirot. And he's back directing this movie and playing Hercule Poirot and Stephen Garrett saw it and has some stuff to say about it. Hello, Stephen. 
Hello. How are you? I'm fine. So uh, Death on the Nile, what'd you think? I enjoyed it. Uh, I really did. I had, a, I had a good time. It's very square. It's very old fashioned. It's square. Um, but it's fun for the type of movie that it is. And it's not trying to be anything but. Um, this is a real throwback to the kinds of all-star murder mysteries that were very in, uh, kind of in fashion in the 70s, especially, um, which is actually, of course, when the other film version of Death in the Nile came out in 1978. Um, and that, of course, had uh, Peter Ustinov as Hercule Poirot, although I much prefer Kenneth Branagh's insanely out-of-control mustache. And actually, in this movie, this new one, the mustache has an origin story, and that's kind of awesome, as preposterous as it sounds. And that wasn't in the original, the mustache or- origin story. I, I don't remember a mustache origin story. Uh, I'm not a big Atha Christie, uh, you know, aficionado. I haven't read all of her books or really any of her books. You say all-star cast, okay? But the 1978 <laughs> Death on the Nile featured, among other people, Betty Davis, yep. Mia Farrow, yep. David Niven, Maggie All-Star. Smith. All stars. Angela Lansbury. Boom. George, George Kennedy. Dave Birkin. Dave Birkin. And of course, Manimal himself, Simon McCorkendale. Simon McCorkin. Exactly. All bangers. Jack Warden. You know, I mean, it just, it was a Jack really Warden. good cast. <laughs> uh, really, a really good cast. Uh, I don't see, I don't, I don't see any cast unless they just had Angela Lansbury in it again, that would be able to match that. What do, we, what do we have in this Death in the Nile? Well, I think uh, what we have here is a case of trying to be multicultural and um, trying to be as diverse as possible in the cast and in the casting. And also superstars are really not, uh, they're not as super as they once were back in uh, olden days. It sounds like you're trying to make excuses for this cast because, hey man, it's hard to be a star. Look, I mean, talk about, we went from Manimal to Cannibal. How about that? Army Hammer. Oh, yeah. He used to be a big star, and then uh, the internet killed him. So right, and his craving for flesh. Apparently, it appears that we have uh, Annette Benning. We have Annette Benning, Russell Brand. <laughs> okay, I know. Look, I'll run. I'll run it down. We got we got a canceled cannibal curious uh, former star. We have Wonder Woman. We have uh, Letitia Wright, um, and we have uh, Oscar winning uh, Sophie uh, Okonedo, who's fantastic in it, but just not a big you know superstar. Uh, old school glamour puss Annette Benning. Uh, Russell Brand, who is playing against Brand uh, by not being funny at all and actually realizing while you're watching it, you'll say, oh, he's not charming unless he's funny. Uh, French and Sanders, or French and Saunders, the uh, you know comedy team from London. It's a cast full of fairly recognizable names. How about that? Yeah, it's not... I'm sorry. It's not David Niven, Maggie Smith, and Betty Davis. But also... Also, what's the combined age of all those people? You know what I'm saying? Like, even back then in the, in the late 70s, it was a pretty long in the tooth sort of movie. Yeah. And here, I think he's trying to tart it up, trying to sex it up, trying to make it appealing to, to everybody. Look, my 12-year-old wanted to come along with me to the screening because she loves Agatha Christie, and she thought it was great. You know, she had a good time. So I think he's trying... Look, I think it's a shrewd pivot. They're, they're making it a younger cast, more diverse. The original book and the original uh, film was basically all white cast. And this has... Uh, they turn one character into a blues singer whose niece is a manager, and that kind of explores the sort of Ma Rainey world of the 1930s blues scene uh, in, a, in an interesting way. Mustache gets a backstory. That's fantastic. Um, Kenneth Branagh, actually, in a, in, I think what I like about it is that um, he's giving Poirot uh, a bit more than just 
a weird mustache and an obsessive compulsive disorder. You know what I mean? It kind of deepens the character, gives him, makes him a little more soulful. They lean into the love and the spurned lovers and the yearning lovers in this movie uh, as a way of really emphasizing this is a crime of passion. But there's a lot of passion going around for everybody. Well, what I what I liked most about the old Murder on the Orient Express that Brando directed was the sort of introductory sequence that sort of introduced Poro as a sort of wacky action hero and the sort of ga- gathering everybody together. You know, there there was a little bit of a you know modern. Uh, it took some modern allowances that uh, the old the old movies didn't. You know, I don't I don't really love those old Ag- Agatha Christie movies either. It's not like this is a genre that like is near and dear to my heart. And I, I certainly don't care that the cast is more racially diverse. I mean, it's, 20, it's 2022. What do I care if Letitia Wright is in Death on the Nile? I mean, it's said it's said in Egypt, <laughs> you know. I mean, for God's sake. So yeah, I, I just I, I just found the uh, a Murder on the Orient Express to be quite stiff. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan of Murder on the Express, either the original or the new one. And I agree with you. I mean, even when I was a kid uh, growing up uh, with these movies coming out. There was a kitschy fun to them, but they also felt kind of hoary and kind of like this is a throwback to the 30s. And this is a already kind of a retro thing that they're doing in the 70s. So it was boomer culture before when the boomers were younger than we are now. <laughs> <Right. laughs> Talk about square. You know, it is like the definition of PBS material. And yet and here we are. We're still making them. I remember there's a title of a, a, a classic uh, Edmund Wilson essay called Who Cares Who Killed Roger Ackroyd? You know, and, it, <laughs> and I feel like, you know, you know, these murder mysteries, I mean, Knives Out did a really good job. I, I don't actually don't love Knives Out, but it you know, did a really good job of right. pointing out how absurd these sort of uh, these sort of closed room murder mysteries are. That's true. I mean, as much as it's an homage, it's also a bit of a send up. It's kind of like, what is it? Murder by death. Well, that's the best one. Murder by Death is is, is by far <laughs> one of the top five movies ever made. My daughter would say the best movie ever made, bar none, is Clue from the eighties. Oh, I, which I agree. Is a I agree. Ridiculously hilarious thing. Yeah, your daughter is a young woman of uh, excellent taste and judgment. That I, I watched that. <laughs> we watched that during sort of the height of the pandemic. My wife and I, and, she, and I was, I could not stop laughing. She's like, what? What? I don't get it. I'm like, I got to see Martin Bull. He's on that. Ah, he's Colonel Mustard. I mean, all right. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like you go back and you watch Murder by Death and Clue and, and you watch these and you're like, oh, OK. But you know what? I mean, look, there's some serious affection. Brana clearly loves this material and he loves these kind of characters. It is a, a throwback. It is, you know, meant for an older demographic. But I think it's sexy enough and cool looking enough and fun enough to appeal to a younger generation. All right. Death on the Nile in theaters now. You got to applaud any movie that's just in theaters now. Stephen Garrett also (laughs) in theaters now. Uh, We will talk to you very soon. Walk like an Egyptian All right. Thanks, Stephen. Death on the Nile is in theaters now. Also, thanks to Sarah Stewart for joining Stephen and I to talk about the Oscars. We did an Oscar roundtable and we decided that I don't like The Power of the Dog, but it doesn't matter what I like. It never matters what I like. The movie I like almost never wins Best Picture. Once in a while, something that I like sneaks in. It's not going to happen this year, though. Also, thanks to Jamie Mason for stopping in to talk about life in Soviet Canada and about Don Winslow versus Joe Rogan, one of the great internet controversies of the week. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. 
We publish great articles nearly every day about the worlds of books and film and streaming TV. Please keep reading the site. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I will talk to you very soon. Thank you.